I know that it's difficult to work with the medical system. I know how hard it is when you get moved around from doctor to doctor and you don't get answers. You only get more questions. And so it can be extremely frustrating. It can be annoying, irritating. You can build resentment. You can become angry. And I hear that quite a bit from my clients, that they either don't see a doctor because they don't believe in things the doctor is going to say to them. They don't trust the medical system. So they don't really see, these are younger people and they don't see the doctor unless someone asks them to or tells them to or something of that nature. They just don't go. It's all in your head. You don't look sick. Your tests are normal. It's probably anxiety. There's nothing wrong with you. Have you heard these words from physicians, family, and friends? If you're someone who has been struggling and swirling through the revolving door of healthcare to find answers about your health, or if you know someone who is going through this experience, then this podcast is for you. Welcome to the Desperate for a Diagnosis podcast with Laura Nozika a show dedicated to exploring the challenges of living with undiagnosed or rare medical conditions. This podcast explores both sides of the bedside. We will be speaking with patients who have had challenges with finding a diagnosis, along with experts in the field. I'm your host, Laura Nozika. Please note I am not a medical professional, nor am I affiliated with any healthcare, pharmaceutical, or device company. I am an entrepreneur, and I am an independent market researcher focused on helping healthcare organizations better understand the patient perspective. The podcast is not meant to offer medical advice, but to merely share the stories and perspectives of podcast guests. Hello, and thank you for joining me today on the Desperate for a Diagnosis podcast. I'm Laura Nozika, your host. And today we have Meg joining us. She has some interesting perspective today because she not only has been going through her journey of trying to find a diagnosis for symptoms that unfortunately don't have a name as of decades that she's been dealing with this, but she also is a licensed social worker. So she has some perspective of her clients as well who have gone through a similar journey or have experienced chronic illness. And she's with me today. Meg, welcome to the podcast. You're very welcome. It's good to be here. Thank you. And when we had our little pre-chat, I was curious about how you came to find me and my podcast and what was interesting for you to be a guest today. I did find it on Inspire. Um, I was looking, I do a lot of web searches for my clients as well as for myself, um, and did find it there. And I found it very intriguing and an opportunity for me to share my story so that others could learn from it. That is the basis of my podcast to help folks like yourself either share their journey and or share their journey to try and find 
someone out there who may have been experienced the same thing and might be able to give you some direction because you have gone through a lot. And I like to talk about the spaghetti factor. And it sounds like you've thrown everything at the wall at this point to try to figure out what's been going on. And it's been a real challenge for you. Meg, why don't you give us your story about where you started with some of the the issues that you've been having, some of the symptoms and the type of physicians or clinicians that you've been seeing. Tell us where it all started. Yeah. It started roughly four decades ago. And I had um, tingling down my left leg from my hip. Didn't go into my foot. It went into maybe as far as the ankle. And it was uh, level seven pain. And I started looking there. I went to my primary care doctors. They referred me to neurologists. So I saw a couple of different neurologists being in Boston and in the southern New Hampshire area. And they did their own diagnostic work and basically told me that I had irritated nerve endings from a curve in my spine. I have a curve in the lumbar spine and also the thoracic spine. And so they said it's an irritation. It's not an entrapment of the nerve. And this was after a series of tests. What kind of tests did you have? I I had MRIs of the, I had over, over time I had four MRIs, different parts of my body, all the way down. And I was put on medication for fibromyalgia. And for chronic pain. What led the doctors to a diagnosis of fibromyalgia and and which type of doctor made that diagnosis? The first time I saw my primary care doctor, that person gave me a diagnosis of fibromyalgia. That was back in, I would say, 1985, 86. Long time. Yeah. That's where that diagnosis came from. And at the time, I wasn't really clear on what that actually meant. And then learned later through my own research that it's a cluster of symptoms. Mm. Like, for instance, what did they include in that bucket of symptoms? Yeah. So one of the things that was very clear in that diagnosis is that I had to have pain in seven parts of my body. And... Seven, well, okay. at the time it was seven to 11 and you, and it was trigger points. So they, uh-huh. they show you like both of your shoulders, sides of your neck, your torso area, your hips, your knees, your feet. So bilaterally, you would have pain on both sides, which was the definition of fibromyalgia at the time. Yet I only had pain on one side of my body oh. and it was, it was in the left leg. So I didn't think it met, met, met the criteria, and my doctor did. It landed in my medical record because that was one of the doctors that came up with that. Well, I don't know if that doctor had colleagues that they consulted with or whether it was their opinion, their professional opinion. 
But that started very early and I was sent to a pain clinic. And the pain clinic gave me medication based on the diagnosis and the chart. And Meg's, your pain that you had was on which side? The left. Was on the left. Okay. And was it pain plus tingling plus numbness? What was it? It was sharp, stabbing, radiating pain, probably a level seven. I have a very high tolerance for pain. So when someone asks me to put it on pain scale, when I say a seven, it's really a seven. That's the seven. Uh, yeah. And I, is it radiating like from your back or your hip? Where do we, I couldn't tell where it was coming from. I actually couldn't tell if it was going up or going down. But as I did more research, it would be going down towards my foot. Mm-hmm. And I was told by a number of doctors at that time that I have a curve in my spine. I have stenosis in my lumbar spine. And I was beginning to have arthritis in my hip. Now, this was very early on. I was probably in my late 20s by then. Mm. And pretty young for, I know, I know it creeps up on us over time, but yeah. that's pretty young. So that's what they, that's how they backed up their diagnosis. And also to determine what they were going to do for treatment. Because they didn't want to do any kind of surgery because of the nature of my spine. And they didn't know what surgery they would do. And certainly I wasn't going to give them permission to do any type of surgery unless I knew what they were looking for. Yeah. Um, at the pain clinic, as they were just treating pain, they gave me Lyrica, Neurontin, Ativan, an antidepressant, and the name escapes me at the moment. But they thought at that point what they were trying to do is change the way that your brain perceives pain. Uh-huh. And so to shut off the pain signal and then treat any inflammation that you have. So the antidepressants might have even been something similar to Cymbalta. But that was the idea. Yeah, that's quite a cocktail. Yes. Yeah. What what was going through your mind at this point with this litany of medications that they were suggesting? Yeah. Yeah. There were lots of things going on for me. I was in school. Part time. I had a young child. I was working full time. And I was thinking that they're not diagnosing me anymore. This pain center is not for diagnostics. And it rarely is. Usually you go in with a diagnosis, and that's why I did. I went in with a diagnosis of fibromyalgia and films. And the other diagnosis that came out of the films was degenerative disc disease. Was that the cervical spine MRI that you had? That was lumbar spine. Lumbar. Okay. Okay. And at this point, Meg, you had seen uh, your primary care physician. You had seen one neurologist. And what other type of physician? Anyone else at this point? Um, I actually saw a physiatrist. I referred myself hmm. 
And so when I realized that's not the thing to do, because when you refer yourself, you go for the appointment and they don't know why you're there. Yeah. What got you to a physiatrist or what got you thinking maybe this could be an option? Yeah, I was thinking it was a combination of some kind of musculoskeletal issue and that it wasn't just about nerves. It was about muscles and about spasms in the muscle. It was something that I was thinking was being overlooked that it's structural from the films and it's causing pain, we know, self-report, that I was thinking that there must be a doctor that looks at both things at once. And I chose to see a physiatrist, thinking I was going to go to the right place and they were going to look at everything. And instead, what happened was I went to the physiatrist, he had me lie down on my back on the table and lift my left leg. And I couldn't lift it very much. I was very stiff in my left leg. And that his remark was that he doesn't usually see that kind of stiffness with someone my age. Mm-hmm. And that is really stiff. And then that was all he really did. I think I was in there for 15 minutes and he did look at my leg. He had me lift my leg. And then he said, what would you like to do? And I said, I want to know why I can't lift my leg. I want to know why I have pain. And he said, I don't know why you have pain. I don't, I wouldn't know that. He said, but I do have some drugs that would, might lessen your pain. Now I didn't go in there for drugs. I know some people do, but I wasn't drug seeking. Hmm. at all and since he couldn't refer me elsewhere for treatment or couldn't do treatment himself he opened the drawer where he had all of the drug samples what were your expectations of the physiatrist my expectation was that they might look in the same place i was in and they would um assess whether it was a structural problem that i was having that was causing that um, inflammation or nerve problem or maybe irritation of the nerve. They did give me, just to back up, a diagnosis of radiculopathy, mm-hmm. which is a symptom. Um, and so I was hoping that they would be able to look at the muscles, look at the nerves, look at ligaments, look at joints. And that didn't happen. I thought it was going to get a different set of eyes looking at this, and it didn't work out that way. And with all of the scans that you had that showed degeneration and now radiculopathy, nerve irritation, knotted impingement, what was making you think that, I don't really think that's it. What was speaking to you that there's got to be something else? I could tell when I moved and my body at well that it was causing more pain than not. And my gait is off. I have a, a gait disturbance. Um, I have the left side, the left leg, the foot just hits the ground. There's no heel to toe motion on that side. So I come down really hard on the left side. And I always walked. I walked two miles every day. 
even though my foot was doing that and it was coming down really hard. So I was hoping that I was going to find someone that could find some way of getting rid of the pain so that I could work on the exercise and do stretching and and building up of muscle and that kind of thing and staying active. Had you had any physical therapy at that point? I had physical therapy off and on. Uh, and one of the physical therapists had did a, gave me an orthotic or had one ordered for me so that I could have more arch support on the left side. And also that one of the diagnoses somewhere along the line was that I have a, an imbalance in my leg. And so he was trying to overcompensate for that by having me get this orthotic. They were quite costly. They were solid orthotics and they were custom. And I wore those for a long time. Because at the time I was on my feet all day. And I wore them every day. I had them in my shoe every day. And the physical therapist did some work on my upper body at the same time. And I, my thought was, my thought was, you're missing it. My thought was frustration. The emotion was definitely frustration. I kept saying to myself, why don't you see it? How would you describe your relationship with the physical therapist? How comfortable did you feel with the PT to say, I think it's this, I think it's that? I was very comfortable with him um, to say those kinds of things. I think that my frustration was coming through when I was there and communicating with him. And him not having an answer He's a physical therapist. He's doing some kind of treatment, and he was re- I was referred to him. So I began to not expect anything to come out of this because I had seen him for 12 weeks, and I was doing the exercises he gave me every day. Some of them I was doing twice a day, and I wasn't feeling any better. And my hips were not flexible. My gait was off, and then my spine was carved, and so I didn't feel like I was getting any closer to um, improve mobility. Mm-hmm. What were the doctors recommending in terms of the curvatures that you had? Were they offering a fix beyond just medication? and pain management? Early on, I think I'm going to jump around from year to year here. But earlier on, they gave me a hard plastic back brace that went from under my arms to the top of my legs. And I wore it every day. And it wasn't fixing the curve. I was told the curve can't be fixed. We can only keep it from getting worse. So they gave me a back brace. It was extremely uncomfortable. But I wore it together with the orthotic and went back to these doctors repeatedly. Now we're talking doctors um, in southern New Hampshire before I should the area I live in now. And 
some of those doctors were in Boston and some were in Southern New Hampshire. And I still wasn't any closer to a diagnosis that I felt comfortable with. So now I had fibromyalgia, degenerative disc disease. And then in another category, they wrote osteoarthritis. And I was thinking, isn't that the same as degenerative disc disease? And different names for things. And they were all coming from different doctors. So they sit in your medical record. No one questions them. It's just now we're taking that out. And again, it's primary care, your neurologist, your psychiatrist, wh- what physical are the therapists, physical therapists, um, physicians, anyone else? The pain management folks. Pain management, yeah. Yeah, and that was, that pain management um, office was run by a nurse. So she was the one I saw a nurse. Is anything give you, giving you any relief as you're going through all of that? Is there, a, a lot of times there isn't one just magic bullet, but was there anything that was proving effective for you? If I sleep well, and I, I can oftentimes wake up and there's no pain. When I get out of bed, the pain begins. And it's there all day. And it gets worse over the course of the day. And then I go to sleep again. And I take medication, not as flea bait per se, but I do take melatonin. I take um, naproxen, some kind of pain reliever. And try to fall asleep and, and another Lyrica. So I would take a Lyrica with those things. Most recently, I was given hydroxyzine. What is that? It's supposed to be for anxiety. And I was given it to help me fall asleep at night because I was taking Ativan and the Ativan is addictive. So another doctor I went to, this is a primary care doctor, said, why is that in there? I don't want you to have that. And she took me off it. She just erased it from the chart. And she gave me the hydroxyzine instead. And she said, take a couple of these when you go to bed with your other medication, which I've been doing. And oftentimes I can fall asleep and stay asleep. That was the other thing is I was waking up before in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. And the pain would come back and then I couldn't stay there. So I had to get up. Did you say at one point, Meg, that you even had some surgeries? Yes. I had surgery on my lumbar spine very early on. And it was before I was in my 20s. It was when I was a child. And that is very, that information, um, I, I have paperwork from them. It's very difficult to read now because it's so old um, that I try to squint to see it. And I tried to make copies of it because I'm digging and digging and saying, wait a minute, maybe there's something in here. And doing the research on my own. But yes, it was early on. It was my lumbar spine, my L1. L5 and S1. And then that's the only surgery I had. And until recently, more recently, in the last few years, had the cervical spine. 
confused. They did four vertebrae there. And what symptoms was that meant to alleviate? I was having trouble walking, balance, a a real balance problem more than I was having before. But the other thing that was happening was that when I was holding something, my hand, I would lose sensation. So my grip, my grasp was lost. I either didn't feel it in my hand anymore and drop it, or it would just float, float out of my hand. So I couldn't grip. And what I was told, these are surgeons in Boston, was told that we could do this because there is problems in the spine, up in the neck and cervical spine. It isn't going to make it better. It just stops it from getting worse. The neck didn't hurt. It never hurt. I never had pain there. In fact, I never had pain in my arms. I just couldn't grip things. Didn't grip things. So has that changed for you since you had that surgery? Somewhat, yes. I Yes, considerably. I wouldn't go to a doctor for this that it is now, for the extent that I did. I wouldn't even mention it. With all of the physicians that you have seen and trying to get these answers, what is your impression of the healthcare system at this point, because as a licensed social worker, I I guess technically you are part of that system, if you consider that. What is your impression of the system now that you're, you are on the other side, I guess I'll say, as a patient? Yeah, well, that's a big question. I feel for my client. I would consider myself very empathic to make feel for my client. I know that it's difficult to work with the medical system. I know how hard it is when you get moved around from doctor to doctor and you don't get answers. You only get more questions. Mm -hmm. And so it can be extremely frustrating. It can be annoying, irritating. You can build resentment. You can become angry. And I hear that quite a bit from my clients, that they either don't see a doctor because they don't believe in things the doctor is going to say to them. They don't trust the medical system. So they don't really see, these are younger people, and they don't see the doctor unless someone asks them to or tells them to or something of that nature. They just don't go. That's a... certainly a sad reflection on its stem, no doubt. What? Yeah. Oh, what is it about the experience of going to see a doctor that you think is instilling this lack of trust, either for yourself or your clients? One of the things I teach my clients, and I don't know if this this is going to answer your question, is that I teach my clients to take an, and I try to do this too, take a very active role um, in a relationship with any doctor, whether it's primary care or a specialist, and to be very vocal about answering I need, I want. And that's assertive communication. It means that you have to be able to do that. You have to be able to do it in a confident way. And say, I need 
this pain to go away. I need a way to manage this pain. I want to be able to do X, Y, and Z leisure activities. I want to be able to ski. I want to be able to garden. I want to be able to walk. And I teach my clients that's necessary um, with the medical system the way it is, that you will get shuffled from person to person. And you might not get answers. And you have to be willing to be persistent. How do you coach your clients to get the, the confidence or the, the gumption or the, we'll call it even the cojones, <laughs> let's say, to speak up? Because there's certainly plenty of yeah. people out there and maybe even certain generations that say, I have to listen to my doctor. It's what my doctor said. So how do you coach clients to find their voice to advocate for themselves? I teach skills. I teach dialectic behavior skills. I teach cognitive behavior skills. A lot of the skills that we work on and I work on with my clients, I think it's very important and the foundation, if you will, for other types of therapy, either with me or someone else, that we learn how to communicate in an effective way. We we need to be able to say, I need, I want, and not furnish the relationship we have. When the medical setting, say with a doctor, I suggest that my clients take notes and that they go into a session with a doctor. When a doctor says, how are you today? That you're honest. That you're honest and you say, I'm not, I'm not, I know it's small talk. Doctors come in and they say, how are you today? You need to tell them. Mm -hmm. You don't say, I'm good. You don't say, okay. You tell them. I had a guest on my show who was very buttoned up with bringing the notes and all the points that she wanted to bring to the doctor with all of her symptoms. And she even said she made sure that she looked nice in hopes that her doctor would like her so that he or she would be most likely, more likely to help her. But she said when she got in the room, the doctor was very much in a hurry and just wanted the, the highlights. What's the high level of what's going on with you? And she got so flustered that she walked out of the office feeling, I, I didn't even get to tell my whole story. So how would you help someone along from that perspective when they're in the right on that cusp of getting really flustered with the physician because physicians tend to be figures of authority and they're supposed, to, they're supposed to help us. How would you maybe, again, coach someone to stand firm on telling their story and, and not to get flustered or detracted by the doctor's comments or attitude, et cetera? One of the things I instill in my clients and I remind myself now is that we're customers. And if we don't like what we're getting, we go somewhere else. Because we're not going to hop from doctor to doctor, certainly. But if we can't have a relationship 
a reciprocal relationship with our, our doctor, then we are doing ourselves a disservice that we are the ones that are paying, whether it's insurance or co-pays or deductible, whatever it is, we're the ones that are paying for that. And so we want to get and we deserve to get as much as we can out of those meetings with the doctor. And so if I had a client, they'd tell me I had everything with me and I do have clients like this. They do research, they take notes, they have very elaborate ways of keeping track of their notes and they walk into a doctor's office and what they would do is I have this research that I found and they hand it to the doctor when they get in the room. I had a client recently. I had a client recently that told me that she's one that does a lot of research. She intellectualizes a lot. But she does a research and she found that this information about this ailment she has or thinks she has. And she had it printed and bound and handed it to her doctor as a book and said, this is what I want you to see. This is what I want you to read. We don't have time to go around this in our session. This is what I want you to have and gave it to him. What was the doctor's reaction? Did she tell you? Yes. Very surprised. And the doctor said, I would expect nothing less. Her doctors have a good deal of respect for her. And she can, they joke around sometimes and they talk about personal things. But she is really good about being able to research and not be afraid of what she reads. Because, and I tell my clients this all the time, pay attention to the source. Go to a source that's credible. Because if you start looking up your diagnoses online, you're going to get lots of things. Mm -hmm. Some are going to scare you. Some might seem accurate. But you're the one that needs to filter through it all. So I give them specific websites and I say, check this one out because this is as unbiased as you're going to get. Which ones in particular, Meg, would you? Yeah, there's one. Um, I think Harvard has a site. One of the sites was that I found was Harvard. And it, you can just type in whatever illness you have and it will bring you to publications and journals and studies and a lot of that is really helpful for people I know, including myself. I like to see research. I was in a research study years ago for acupuncture, but I didn't actually get the treatment. I got a placebo. I see. And I, we talked a little bit about maybe some of the alternative modalities yeah. that maybe yes. you've tried. Yeah. Yeah. And so I really want them to stay assertive and practice to do that because a lot of times we have illnesses that go on for a long time. We tend to get very passive as patients mm-hmm. over time. We get worn out. We're just worn out. No. Yeah. Where are you now, Meg, with your journey and this quest to find 
a diagnosis. I changed primary care doctors a year ago. And this is somebody that came recommended by a friend who had a friend. So there's a few people that have this person. And I started going to him. And he looked at my medical record and said, you're very complicated. I know that. And I am very candid with him. I'm very candid with him. And I say, this is frustrating. It's frustrating because when you say go to physical therapy, I've been to physical therapy for years. I'm still here. I'm not finished searching for treatment. I have diagnoses and I believe some of them. I look at my spine. I know it's crooked. I know my hip is turned and what direction it's turned. I can tell mm-hmm. if I don't walk straight. I can see all that. What I can't see is where that nerve pain is coming from. And there are ways now online, there's online programs that my clients are purchasing that teach us, and she mentioned this one to me, to teach, to redefine your pain. Talk to your pain like it's something outside of your body. Give it a name. Hmm. any name and talk to it the other thing that people do when this came out of the programs is that not only do we want to give it a name because we want it to be separate from us so we give it a different name that pain is not me it's not called bang it's called whatever and the other thing that we try to do is we Try to think of our pain, if we have pain, that we describe it in a different way. Describing is very important because it becomes visual. I might say my whatever, whatever we like, if there's something we like. My zinnia flower is blooming a lot today. My zinnia flower smells really good today. You're talking about your pain. Hmm. And instead of saying, oh, that really hurts, and I don't know where it's coming from, because that scares us. Instead, we say, my zinnia or something to eat or something else is, for example, my, this food is very hot today. That means my pain is really high. Mm -hmm. Interesting. We could do a whole nother of course. segment <laughs> on the, the brain-pain connection because yes. that, that is a, a, a real thing. And, and I would love to to have someone come and, and talk about that, maybe even yourself again at, at some point, Meg. When we talk about, I'd like to wrap things up a lot in our in my podcast, asking about the silver lining. And mm-hmm. there are any silver lining for you here at all? Somewhat, yes. The silver lining is that I am in a position where I help people. I can step in the shoes of my clients and help people. And I could have nine people a day that I'm doing this with. And when I'm stepping inside their shoes, I'm not in my own. 
I don't stay there. And I tell them that. I say, I have to step inside your shoes to know how you feel. And I'm going to do that. But I won't stay there because if I do, I can't help you. I What happens is that I have a routine, a structured routine that includes so many visits a day. And I just move from one client to the next. And I don't think about me. I don't think about, I can feel the pain, but it's not a seven. It's maybe a four or three because I'm focusing on that client in front of me and doing my work with them. And I can't pay attention to both. And so I might feel the pain, but it's background pain. So I suggest to people that they find something that's going to really be something they like to do, but also something that's going to be something they can get absorbed in. That's the silver lining for me is that I do know that eventually something will come up and I'll start feeling better. I believe that. I have hope. Meanwhile, I do things to help my clients. So certainly you can relate to your clients. For many years, it's not it's nothing new for you since you've been going through this for so long. I have to ask, how good would you say you are at following your own advice? I'm pretty good, actually. I will tell you that. There are days when I'm saying I, I just don't, I don't have anything to give. And I've said that before. I have, I had a very heavy case long for a long time. And there were, I was going back to back with clients. I wasn't standing up enough. So my back hurt, my hip hurt, my legs hurt. And I, I would just seek one client after another. And I did say to myself, I feel like I have nothing else to spare. And then somehow I do. You find it, you dig. You find it somewhere. Right. Yeah, you dig. Meg, how would you like our listeners to help you? In your journey, helping you with finding a diagnosis or giving you some direction or ideas or other okay. type of professionals to pursue? Sure. I One thing I am particularly interested in, and I haven't done it yet, it's something I'd have to pay privately for, um, is hypnosis. I haven't tried that. I'm wondering if that would be useful. I'm not interested in medications. I'm not interested in recreational drugs. I think if any of the listeners could help me would be to give me resources that I might not already have. That, for example, really good neurologists. Where do we find those people? Who are those people? And where we go from here, what else is possible? Mm -hmm. Short of being part of a blog, I sometimes find those helpful, but oftentimes I don't. That I just, I get very frustrated if I go to a new doctor and I get the same answer. You're a very complicated case. And and when they ask you that, yeah, that when they you. say that, yeah, I feel like I'm not being heard. What do you think? What do you think they're implying? I have a lot of diagnoses. There's things wrong that are that can't be fixed. And what, if, what if there are things that can't be fixed? At what point do you accept 
that or not, but do you get to that point or should I you? think on a deeper level, yes, I've accepted it. I've seen my x-rays, my MRIs. I see the way it looks. It's scary to look at because it's not good. And I do have a level of acceptance, but I also don't want to be passive. Sure. So that's the balance that I want to have is that, yes, I'm frustrated. And yes, I accept some of these things. I don't accept that in this day and age that people should be walking around with level eight pain. That's not acceptable to me. So not just me, but anyone. Yeah, because I think you had said when we when we first talked that you had a diagnosis of I think it was chronic pain syndrome or something. Chronic pain syndrome. And you tell me, tell our listeners the story about when that one physician saw that on your chart. Yeah. Yeah. That's an unfortunate diagnosis because when you have one like that, the chronic pain syndrome, it's, oh, you've had, you have chronic pain for six months or more. So it must be the way your brain works. That you're experiencing this perception of pain and you've been perceiving it for a long time. And so now it becomes a syndrome. And there's nothing we can do for syndrome. They used to call it fibromyalgia syndrome. And that, that label by itself, that label, I don't feel good about. I'm frustrated about that. Mm-hmm. About fibromyalgia, about a diagnosis that would be called a syndrome. Yeah, because that that cluster of symptoms, and I've said that to doctors before. When they say you have this syndrome, I'm saying, I, "What's the diagnosis? That's not a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. That's a cluster of symptoms." Yeah, I, and I, I think we talked about how this kind of puts you in a bucket of this, as you said, a label that in my mind, leads to patient profiling in a lot of ways, because I think now all of a sudden their brains are rolling with, oh, complicated. Oh, might be all in her head. Oh, she's a frequent flyer. All of the, all these things that I've heard from other patients. Absolutely. Now, is that kind of what you get from that or something? I get the sense. I get the sense from them sometimes, depending on the doctor. If they mention chronic pain syndrome to me, I say that what's the diagnosis? That's a cluster of symptoms. And I know I have that. I told that I have this. So that doesn't, that's not helping me to have that diagnosis. It just means all of the testing stops because you have a syndrome. And so we don't, we're not going to look any farther for things because that's where that came from. Mm-hmm. It, it's uh, frustrating. Yeah. Fr- frustrating, I think, is the, the, the key word with a journey like this because it really is that revolving door of healthcare that I like to talk about. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm hoping that at some point along the line, that experience isn't the case and doctors hopefully might be more engaged in their patients and helping find the answers. But we could also do a whole other segment on why physicians don't have the time or can't devote the time to helping a patient find the diagnosis or doing 
research. So definitely lots of topics to address. But Meg, my hope is that the listeners can direct you to some other resources or maybe some other diagnoses beyond fibromyalgia and uh, chronic pain syndrome, all these kind of vague things. Trying to find an answer is so important for so many reasons. And my hope is that we can get that uh, to you and anyone who might have any ideas for Meg can reach out to me at lauramarie at desperateforadiagnosis.com. And thank you so much for all of those tips that you brought to our attention in terms of being able to stand up and find your voice with a physician. I'd love to put those in the show notes if that's okay with you. Fine. It's good to help our listeners as well. So Meg, thank you so much for being with me today and I wish you well. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Oh my goodness, that's a wrap on another compelling story. Thanks for listening to the Desperate for a Diagnosis podcast. If you would like more information about today's guests or to find out more about Laura, me, go to desperateforadiagnosis.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow show updates and healthcare news on the podcast's Facebook page. If you would like to be a guest on the show or if you have any questions, advice, or suggestions for our guests, please email me at lauramarie at desperateforadiagnosis.com.